0: Section twenty of Volume One of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume One of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter Eleven. Charlemagne and His Government. Part Two. What Charlemagne was, in his wars and his general relations with his nation, has just been seen. He shall now be exhibited in all his administrative activity and his intellectual life, as a legislator and as a friend to the human mind. The same man will be recognized in every case. He will grow in greatness, without changing, as he appears under his various aspects. They are often joined together, under the title of capitularies, capitula, small chapters, articles, a mass of acts, very different in point of date and objects, which are attributed indiscriminately to Charlemagne. This is a mistake. The capitularies are the laws or legislative measures of the Frankish kings, Merovingian as well as Carlovingian. Those of the Merovingians are few in number and of slight importance, and amongst those of the Carlovingians, which amount to one hundred and fifty-two, sixty-five are only due to Charlemagne. When an attempt is made to classify, these last according to their object, it is impossible not to be struck with their incoherent variety, and several of them are such as we should nowadays be surprised to meet with in a code or in a special law. Amongst Charlemagne's sixty-five capitularies, which contain eleven hundred and fifty-one articles, may be counted eighty-seven of moral, two hundred and ninety-three of political, one hundred and thirty of penal, one hundred and ten of civil, eighty-five of religious, three hundred and five of canonical, seventy-three of domestic, and twelve of incidental legislation. And it must not be supposed that all these articles are really acts of legislation, laws, properly so called, we find amongst them the texts of ancient national laws revised and promulgated afresh, extracts from and additions to these same ancient laws, Sal, Lombard, and Bavarian, extracts from acts of councils, instructions given by Charlemagne to his envoys in the provinces, questions that he proposed to put to the bishops or counts when they came to the National Assembly, answers given by Charlemagne to questions addressed to him by the bishops, counts, or commissioners, Missi Dominici, judgments, decrees, royal pardons, and simple notes that Charlemagne seems to have written down for himself alone, to remind him of what he proposed to do. In a word, nearly all the various acts which could possibly have to be framed by an earnest, far-sighted, and active government. Often, indeed, these capitularies have no imperative or prohibitive character. They are simple counsels, purely moral precepts. We read therein, for example, Covetousness doth consist in desiring that which others possess, and in giving away naught of that which one's self possesseth. According to the apostle it is the root of all evil. And, hospitality must be practised the capitularies which have been classed under the heads of political penal and canonical legislation are the most numerous and are those which bear most decidedly an imperative or prohibitive stamp amongst them a prominent place is held by measures of political economy administration and police you will find therein an attempt to put a fixed price on provisions a real trial of a maximum for cereals a prohibition of mendicity, with the following clause, if such mendicants be met with, and they labour not with their hands, let none take thought about giving unto them. The interior police of the palace was regulated thereby, as well as that of the empire. We do will and decree that none of those who serve in our palace shall take leave to receive therein any man who seeketh refuge there, and cometh to hide there, by reason of theft, homicide, adultery, or any other crime. That if any free man do break through our interdicts and hide such a malefactor in our palace, he shall be bound to carry him on his shoulders to the public quarter and there be tied to the same stake as the malefactor. certain capitularies have been termed religious legislation in contradistinction to canonical legislation because they are really admonitions, religious exhortations addressed not to the ecclesiastics alone but to the faithful the Christian people in general, and notably characterized by good sense, and, one might almost say, freedom of thought. For example, beware of venerating the names of martyrs falsely so called, and the memory of dubious saints. Let none suppose that prayer cannot be made to God save in three tongues, probably Latin, Greek, and Germanic, or perhaps the vulgar tongue, for the last was really beginning to take form. For God alone is adored in all tongues, and man is heard, if he do but ask for the things that be right. These details are put forward that a proper idea may be obtained of Charlemagne as a legislator, and of what are called his laws. We have here, it will be seen, no ordinary legislator and no ordinary laws. We see the work, with infinite variations, and in disconnect form, of a prodigiously energetic and watchful master, who had to think and provide for everything, who had to be everywhere the moving and the regulating spirit. This universal and untiring energy is the grand characteristic of Charlemagne's government, and was, perhaps, what made his superiority most incontestable and his power most efficient. It is noticeable that the majority of Charlemagne's capitularies belonged to that epoch of his reign when he was Emperor of the West, when he was invested with all the splendour of sovereign power. Of the sixty-five capitularies classed under different heads, thirteen only are previous to the 25th of December, 800, the date of his coronation as Emperor at Rome. Fifty-two are comprised between the years 801 and 804. The energy of Charlemagne as a warrior and a politician, having thus been exhibited, it remains to say a few words about his intellectual energy. For that is by no means the least original or least grand feature of his character and his influence." Modern times and civilized society have more than once seen despotic sovereigns filled with distrust towards scholars of exalted intellect, especially such as cultivated the moral and political sciences, and a little inclined to admit them to their favor or to public office. There is no knowing whether, in our days, with our freedom of thought and of the press, Charlemagne would have been a stranger to this feeling of antipathy. But what is certain is, that in his day, in the midst of a barbaric society, there was no inducement to it, and that by nature he was not disposed to it. His power was not in any respect questioned, distinguished intellects were very rare, Charlemagne had too much need of their services to fear their criticisms, and they on their part were more anxious to second his efforts than to show towards him anything like exaction or independence. He gave rein, therefore, without any embarrassment or misgiving, to his spontaneous inclination towards them, their studies, their labours, and their influence he drew them into the management of affairs. In Guizot's History of Civilization in France there is a list of the names and works of twenty-three men of the eighth and ninth centuries who have escaped oblivion, and they are all found grouped about Charlemagne as his own habitual advisers, or assisted by him as advisers to his sons Pepin and Louis in Italy and Aquitania, or sent by him to all points of his empire as commissioners, Missi, Dominici, or charged in his name with important negotiations. And those whom he did not employ at a distance formed, in his immediate neighbourhood, a learned and industrious society, a school of the palace, according to some modern commentators, but an academy, and not a school, according to others, devoted rather to conversation than to teaching. It probably fulfilled both missions. It attended Charlemagne at his various residences, at one time working for him at questions he invited them to deal with, at another giving the regular components of his court, to his children, and to himself, lessons in the different sciences called liberal, grammar, rhetoric, logic, astronomy, geometry, and even theology, and the great religious problems it was beginning to discuss. Two men, Alcuin and Egenhard, have remained justly celebrated in the literary history of the age. Alcuin was the principal director of the school of the palace, and the favorite, the confidant, the learned adviser of Charlemagne. If your zeal were imitated, said he one day to the Emperor, perchance one might see arise in France a new Athens, far more glorious than the ancient, the Athens of Christ. Eginhard, who was younger, received his scientific education in the school of the palace, and was head of the public works to Charlemagne, therefore becoming his biographer, and at a later period the intimate adviser of his son Louis the debonair. Other scholars of the school of the palace, Ingelbert, Ledred, Adelhard, Agobard, Theodulf, were abbots of St. Requier or Corbie, archbishop of Lyon, and bishops of Orléans. They had all assumed, in the school itself, names illustrious in pagan antiquity. Alcuin called himself Flines, Engelbert, Homer, Theodulf, Pender. Charlemagne himself had been pleased to take, in their society, a great name of old, but he had borrowed from the history of the Hebrews. He called himself David, and Eginhard, animated, no doubt, by the same sentiments, was Bezalel, that nephew of Moses to whom God had granted the gift of knowing how to work skilfully in wood, and all the materials which served for the construction of the ark and the tabernacle. Either in the lifetime of their royal patron, or after his death, all these scholars became great dignitaries of the church, or ended their lives in monasteries of note, But so long as they lived they served Charlemagne or his sons not only with the devotion of faithful advisers, but also as followers proud of the master who had known how to do them honor by making use of them. It was without effort and by natural sympathy that Charlemagne had inspired them with such sentiments, for he too really loved sciences, literature, and such studies as were then possible, and he cultivated them on his own account and for his own pleasure as a sort of conquest. It has been doubted whether he could write, and an expression of Eginhard's might authorize such a doubt. But according to other evidence, and even according to the passage in Eginhard, one is inclined to believe merely that Charlemagne strove painfully, and without much success, to write a good hand. He had learned Latin, and he understood Greek. He caused to be commenced, and perhaps himself commenced, the drawing up of the first Germanic grammar. He ordered that the old barbaric poems, in which the deeds and wars of the ancient kings were celebrated, should be collected for posterity. He gave Germanic names to the twelve months of the year. He distinguished the winds by twelve special terms, whereas before his time they had but four designations. He paid great attention to astronomy. Being troubled one day at no longer seeing in the firmament one of the known planets, he wrote to Alcuin, "'What thinkest thou of this Mars?' which, last year, being concealed in the sign of cancer, was intercepted from the sight of men by the light of the sun. Is it the regular course of his revolution? Is it the influence of the sun? Is it a miracle? Could he have been two years about performing the course of a single one? In theological studies and discussions he exhibited a particular and grave interest. It is to him, say M. M. Amphire and Herrault, that we must refer the honour of the decision taken in 794 by the Council of Frankfurt, in the great dispute about images. A temperate decision, which is as far removed from the infatuation of the image-worshippers as from the frenzy of the image-breakers. And at the same time that he thus took part in the great ecclesiastical questions, Charlemagne paid zealous attention to the instruction of the clergy, whose ignorance he deplored. Ah, said he one day, if only I had about me a dozen clerics learned in all the sciences, as Jerome and Augustine were. With all his puissance it was not in his power to make jeromes and augustins, but he laid the foundation, in the cathedral churches and great monasteries, of episcopal and cloistral schools for the education of ecclesiastics, and carrying his solicitude still farther, he recommended to the bishops and abbots that, in those schools, they should take care to make no difference between the sons of serfs and of free men, so that they might come and sit on the same benches to study grammar, music, and arithmetic. Capitularies of 789, Article 70. Thus, in the eighth century, he foreshadowed the extension which, in the nineteenth, was to be accorded to primary instruction, to the advantage and honor not only of the clergy, but also of the whole people. After so much of war and toil at a distance, Charlemagne was now at Aix la Chapelle, finding rest in this work a peaceful civilization. He was embellishing the capital which he had found, and which was called the King's Court. He had built there a grand basilica, magnificently adorned. He was completing his own palace there. He fetched from Italy clerics skilled in church music, a pious joyance to which he was much devoted, and which he recommended to the bishops of his empire. In the outskirts of Aix-la-Chapelle he gave full scope, said Eginhard, to his delight in riding and hunting. Baths of naturally tepid water gave him great pleasure. Being passionately fond of swimming, he became so dexterous that none could be compared with him. He invited not only his sons, but also his friends, the grandees of his court, and sometimes even the soldiers of his guard, to bathe with him, insomuch that there were often a hundred and more persons bathing at a time. When age arrived he made no alteration in his bodily habits, but at the same time, instead of putting away from him the thought of death, he was much taken up with it, and prepared himself for it with stern severity he drew up, modified, and completed his will several times over. Three years before his death he made out the distribution of his treasures, his money, his wardrobe, and all his furniture, in the presence of his friends, and his officers, in order that their voice might ensure, after his death, the execution of this partition, and he set down his intentions in this respect in a written summary, in which he massed all his riches in three grand lots." the first two were divided into twenty-one portions, which were to be distributed amongst the twenty-one metropolitan churches of his empire. After having put these first two lots under seal, he willed to preserve to himself his usual enjoyment of the third, so long as he lived. But after his death or voluntary renunciation of the things of this world, this same lot was to be subdivided into four portions. His intention was, that the first should be added to the twenty-one portions which were to go to the metropolitan churches, the second set aside for his sons and daughters, and for the sons and daughters of his sons, and redivided amongst them in a just and proportionate manner, the third dedicated, according to the usage of the Christians, to the necessities of the poor, and lastly, the fourth distributed in the same way, under the name of alms, amongst the servants of both sexes of the palace for their lifetime. As for the books, of which he had amassed a large number in his library, he decided that those who wished to have them might buy them at their proper value, and that the money which they produce should be distributed amongst the poor. Having thus carefully regulated his own private affairs and bounty, he, two years later, in 813, took the measures necessary for the regulation, after his death, of public affairs. He had lost, in 811, his eldest son, Charles, who had been his constant companion in his wars, and in 810, his second son, Pepin, whom he had made king of Italy, and he summoned to his side his third son louis king of aquitaine who was destined to succeed him he ordered the convocation of five local councils which were to assemble at mayence rheims chalons tours and arles for the purpose of bringing about subject to the king's ratifications the reforms necessary in the church Passing from the affairs of the church to those of the state, he convoked at Aix-la-Chapelle a general assembly of bishops, abbots, counts, laic grandees, and of the entire people, and holding council in his palace with the chief amongst them, he invited them to make his son Louis king emperor, whereto all assented, saying that it was very expedient and pleasing also to the people. On Sunday in the next month, August, eight thirteen, Charlemagne repaired, crown on head, with his son Louis, to the cathedral of Aix-la-Chapelle, laid upon the altar another crown, and after praying, addressed to his son a solemn exhortation, respecting all his duties as king towards God and church, towards his family and his people, and asked him if he were fully resolved to fulfil them, and at the answer that he was, bade him take the crown that lay upon the altar, and place it with his own hands upon his head, which Louis did amidst the acclamations of all present, who cried, Long live the emperor Louis! Charlemagne then declared his son-emperor jointly with him, and ended the solemnity with these words, Blessed be thou, O Lord God, who hast granted me grace to see with mine own eyes my son seated on my throne. And Louis set out again immediately for Aquitaine. He was never to see his father again. Charlemagne, after his son's departure, went out hunting, according to his custom, in the forest of Ardennes, and continued, during the whole autumn, his usual mode of life. But in January 814 he was taken ill, says Eginhard, of a violent fever which kept him to his bed. Recurring forthwith to the remedy he ordinarily employed against fever, he abstained from all nourishment, persuaded that this diet would suffice to drive away or at least assuage the malady. But added to the fever came that pain in the side which the Greeks call pleurisy. Nevertheless the emperor persisted in his abstinence, supporting his body only by drinks taken at long intervals and on the seventh day after he had taken to his bed, having received the Holy Communion, he expired, about nine a.m., on Saturday, the 28th of January, 814, in his seventy-first year. After performance of ablutions and funeral duties, the corpse was carried away and buried, amidst the profound mourning of all the people, in the church he himself had built. And above his tomb there was put up a gilded arcade with his image, and this superscription. In this tomb reposeth the body of Charles, great and orthodox emperor, who did gloriously extend the kingdom of the Franks, and did govern it happily for forty-seven years. He died at the age of seventy years, in the year of the Lord 814, in the seventh year of the indiction, on the fifth of the calends of February. If we sum up his designs and his achievements, we find an admirably sound idea and a vain dream, a great success and a great failure. Charlemagne took in hand the work of placing upon a solid foundation the Frankish-Christian dominion by stopping, in the north and south, the flood of barbarians and Arabs, paganism and Islamism. In that he succeeded. The inundations of Asiatic populations spent their force in vain against the Gallic frontier. Western and Christian Europe was placed, territorially, beyond reach of attacks from the foreigner and infidel. No sovereign, no human being, perhaps, ever rendered greater service to the civilization of the world. Charlemagne formed another conception and made another attempt. Like more than one great barbaric warrior, he admired the Roman Empire that had fallen, its vastness all in one, and its powerful organizations under the hand of a single master. He thought he could resuscitate it, durably, through the victory of a new people and a new faith, by the hand of Franks and Christians. With this view he laboured to conquer, convert, and govern. He tried to be, at one and the same time, Caesar, Augustus, and Constantine. And for a moment he appeared to have succeeded, but the appearance passed away with himself. The unity of the empire and the absolute power of the emperor were buried in his grave. The Christian religion and human liberty set to work to prepare for Europe other governments and other destinies. Great men do great things which would not get done without them. They set their mark plainly upon history, which realizes a portion of their ideas and wishes, but they are far from doing all they meditate, and they know not all they do. They are at one and the same time instruments and free agents in a general design which is infinitely above their ken, and which, even if a glimpse of it be caught, remains inscrutable to them-the design of God towards mankind. When great men understand that such is their position and accept it, they show sense, and they work to some purpose. When they do not recognize the limits of their free agency and the veil which hides from their eyes the future they are laboring for, they become the dupes and frequently the victims of a blind pride which events in the long run always end by exposing and punishing. Amongst men of his rank, Charlemagne had this singular good fortune that his error, his misguided attempt at imperialism, perished with him, whilst his salutary achievement, the territorial security of Christian Europe, has been durable, To the great honor as well as the great profit of European civilization. End of chapter eleven.